Hey, Deserving Listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would talk about something that I've been getting a lot of emails about. But before I do that, let's introduce the podcast. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm a licensed therapist, and I'm also a professor and a program in which we train therapists. In today's episode, I'm going to talk about a very sensitive topic regarding pedophilia and sexual abuse. And uh, before I go into it, you, you should know that I'm not going to go into detail on any kind of abuse, so uh, gauge your trigger warnings on that. But I will be, the whole episode, we're going to be talking essentially about pedophilia and the development of sexuality and that kind of thing. Also, you should know that uh, this is not a, an expertise of mine and that I, uh, th- my knowledge in this area has come from m- my 20-plus years as a clinician and instructor in the broader field of therapy, of psychotherapy. And also, I, as a podcaster over the last nine years, have been responding to certain topics that are popular on the internet and there's probably like a list of i don't know 100 different kind of hot topics that are frequently discussed and one of the one of those 100 topics is sexuality and uh, maybe more specifically pedophilia and so uh, so I'm going to be talking about that but just just a couple caveats here one is is that child sexual abuse is wrong it's morally wrong. It's harmful. It's it, even if one says it's quote unquote consensual, it is very risky. It almost always is severely harmful to people. It could be argued it, it always harms. It always harms kids. And as a therapist who has treated sexual abuse survivors for twenty plus years, I can tell you that I uh, am. I know the full breadth and um, and depth of the damage, very real damage. I don't use that word lightly. That sexual abuse and child molestation does for people. It uh, has lifelong negative consequences, and therefore should never be engaged in. There, there's no reason for it, and it has, um, like I said, just long-lasting, uh, at the very least, sexual confusion, and, and at, the, at the highest, people can kill themselves as a result of being victimized in this way, and or they can per- perpetuate the cycle of abuse by abusing children themselves. And so uh, it's a very serious topic, it's a very grave topic, and uh, I, I just want to say that f- from the onset. Um, as I go into this conversation, I, I'm going to. Uh, I, I have a lot of points I want to get across because there's just so many angles to this that have to be established before you can even get into the conversation as to whether or not pedophilia should be considered a sexual orientation. Uh, that that question is so loaded that there are a lot of caveats that, that, that have to be made. And our society is just so backward when it comes to sexuality in general, and particularly backward when it comes to uh, things like this, that there's just so many caveats, including caveats to the caveats that I'm doing right now. So, uh, all right, so uh, let me get into this topic.
I've been getting a number of emails regarding the episode in which we uh, talked about attachment to your sexual abuser. In that episode, we talked about how a listener or a patron wrote in and was talking about how she felt attachment. She, she felt close to the man who had sexually abused her. It was a neighbor, I believe, when, when she was uh, 10 years old or something. And when he was sent to prison, she felt a mixture of feelings, including loss, but also, obviously, she felt relieved that she was no longer being harmed. But he, she was saying that he was actually not an evil person and that he had some good sides to him, and she actually missed those sides of him. She didn't miss the abuse, and she wasn't justifying the abuse, and she was saying the abuse was awful, but she was saying that things are complicated. And the other thing she was saying was that she, she doesn't want to give the impression that she thinks sexual abuse is okay. She, she knows it's not. I mean, she's a victim of sexual abuse. She knows that it, it has its negative effects for sure. And there's a, there's a wide variety of the sorts of abuse and the, the intensity of the terror that one can go through regarding abuse. But, but anyway... Um, I've been getting a number of emails. Uh, the, the, the two topics that people are emailing me about, about are as follows. Number one is people asking about my discussion as to the development of our sexuality. I was in this episode, I was explaining pedophilia and how it might emerge out of childhood experiences. I, I was talking about how uh, the 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 high correlation between childhood sexual abuse or odd sexual experiences as a child and the development of pedophilia as an as an older person or even as a younger person, and how the, how the possible mechanism might work for for and the example I gave was related to a foot fetish and how that can develop early in life. You're on the floor. You're small. And you get a sexual charge somehow, and it's associated with women's feet. You, you got to go listen to the attachment of uh, attachment to your sexual abuser episode. Um, well, I guess it bears repeating if if I'm going to talk about this. But the the I, so on the onset before talking about this, the the bottom line is listeners to this episode, uh, to this podcast will attest to is that I'll say is that the brain is not understood. And human behavior is not understood. It's, some behavior is easier to understand than, than others. For instance, as I always point to, the motivation for us to eat sugary foods is pretty well documented. It's it's across cultures. It's un, it's it's understood uh, in a rudimentary way. In the future, we will understand it in much more detail. And it makes sense given how evolution works and selection and how calories work and all that kind of stuff. So our motivation to eat sugary things or, or fatty things or salty things or just eat in general or have sex, it all makes sense given the cross-species motivations that, that we see. Um, but when it comes to sexuality and particularly uh, particular sexual motivations that individuals have, we don't understand that at all. There, there's, there's 
some guesses and speculation and, and some biology that some people have found. But uh, but in, but in general, that the the notion that we evolved to be motivated to have sex makes sense, right? Because all animals, or the vast majority of animals, have this. Even plant life have this prime directive of procreation, and so sex for humans is a part of procreation. And so it makes sense that we were born with this mental capacity toward uh, wanting to have sex and having reward systems set up in our brain to have sex and all that kind of stuff. But when it comes to specific attraction, it's extremely varied across individuals. And what it, the, the, the theory that I have heard and that I, that sounds compelling to me and is, uh, and at least anecdotally uh, matches up with things that I've seen is that we have a, a, the metaphor I had was we start, we're born with a canvas that's sort of painted in there. There's, there's some vague images on the, on the painting, if you want to go with this metaphor. And then as we have, sexual experiences really from an early age starting from birth we we have genitals at birth and can have uh, very proto sexual experiences when we're young is that is proto is that the right um, i think that's the right term but anyway we get a very early sexual experiences we might not um, remember them or we might not even think of them as sexual experiences because we don't even know what sex is but when we have those experiences, it starts to paint onto the canvas. We start to have associations. So the foot example I gave was that you're on the ground and you're, you know, you're say you're four years old and you're playing with Legos and you're, and you're a boy and mom's friends come over and these young ladies are sitting on the couch and, and you're right at their feet and they are, uh, you know, playing with you or they're paying you attention or maybe they're even touching you um, not in your genitals but they're they're touching you and and it feels good to be paid attention to and to get that kind of warmth from people and then there's some kind of uh, either the boy looks up the girl's skirt or there's some kind of brush with uh, with the genitals and some maybe there's some horseplay and there's some genital rubbing of some kind and the four-year-old boy although he has no idea what sex is he gets a sexual charge he gets some kind of jolt through his body that uh, his body is is set up to associate with sex and he uh, gets a you know a jolt of pleasure and it's it's this early sexuality that that emerges and again we don't like to talk about four-year-old sexuality but talk to any parent and anyone who knows about these sorts of things and they will say yeah absolutely kids they have genitals and you know sometimes they like to play with their genitals and blah blah, blah. <clears throat> how many times can i say genitals in this episode that that's that's a drinking game um and so this four-year-old boy gets this little charge while and then while he gets this charge he, he because he's so small he's he's at he's at shin level at foot level and he, all of this becomes encoded in his brain, sexual charge, women uh, fawning over him, 
genital sensations and what he's looking at are feet and high heel shoes and shins or even stockings or something. And then you ha- now maybe just one event can, can cause this to happen if it's intense enough. But say you rinse and repeat that 10, 20 times over the next year or so. Well, this boy will grow up and at some point in his you know life, he's going to realize, whoa, when I look at feet, I get a sexual charge. When I look at high heel shoes, I don't know why, but I get this, I get this sexual charge. Um, and so then the path continues, right? Because maybe he masturbates while he looks at feet porn of some kind. And so that further encodes the sexual association between feet and, and sexuality. And so that's one hypothesis as to why a foot fetish can can develop and seems quite compelling to me. Other other examples are early sexual experiences that you might have when you're 13 or 14 can, uh, you know, 13 or 14 year olds sometimes engage in sexual activity with their with their peers. And those early experiences in my anecdotal experience can absolutely create uh, paint onto the canvas and create a certain preference for certain things to happen, certain contexts. This is why I think that for some people, public sex is something that turns them on. It doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Getting caught, uh, all these kinds of associations. Well, it doesn't take a genius to, uh, to using this model of, of sexual development to figure that out. When, when we're in most of us, most people, when they are starting to have sex, it's during a time when they're not allowed to have sex, or at least they're not encouraged to. And they are in high school or you know around that age, and they're, they're living at home. And so they don't have any privacy. They can't get they don't have their own apartment that they can just live freely in and so they have to sneak around and so people will sneak around in cars or in basements or in the woods and so that rinse and repeat that a hundred times and at the age of 50 or 60 you're probably still going to have this this association between getting caught or being in public or uh, being in a car, being in the woods, uh, and associating that with sexuality. So there's a, there's and the the possibilities are endless, and uh, a lot of this we might not even necessarily know because we don't remember what our lives were like when we were four years old or three years old. And so, um, so this is uh, again, it's it's a mixture of nature and nurture. We're born with a capacity for sexuality, but as we develop, it routes us in a particular direction. And to me, in terms of evolution, in terms of uh, epigenetics, it makes sense because every human is born into a different cultural context going back a hundred, you know, thousand years. And every, so every, if, if, if humans were born with a very fixed set of fetishes, shall we, shall we say, then it might not match with that particular culture. And so the, the 
sexuality of a human has to be somewhat flexible to adjust to what pre- presents itself in, in, into the culture so that they can um, procreate and be motivated to have sex. And so uh, in the same way that language, right, we're, we're born with a capacity for language, but we aren't born speaking a particular language. And as we develop and interact with the world, we end up learning what what language to actually speak. We're actually born with the capacity to uh, um, vocalize nearly all the different syllables you hear around the world. And as we uh, develop early in life, starting just a few months into life, we start to cull the amount of uh, vocalizations that we are capable of to the culture that we're in. There are certain syllables that uh, s- people across culture can't utter, right? There, I'm, uh, I speak American, Seattle accented English, and when people in Chi- Chinese people ask me to utter two different syllables, I can't hear the difference. You know, I they sound the same, and when they ask me to utter them, I can't. They, I try, and they're like, "Oh, that's not right." Well, and the same goes for people in, who were born and raised in China and they come to the States and, and I uh, try to get them to say a certain syllable and they just can't. But the idea is, is that when they're infants, when they're born, they can utter those syllables, but uh, over time, those pathways in the brain became um, extinct, shall we say, because they weren't being used because uh, infants are uh, born with this instinct to mimic their parents in a lot of ways, including language anyway. So the point is, is that when I talked about that in that episode, it probably even took less time to talk about it in the previous episode about sexuality, is people were emailing me and saying, well, what does that say about lesbians and gays and bisexual people? Um, what, What does that say about them? Are you saying that they are uh, their preference for same-sex uh, sexual relationships. Is that because <clears throat> is that because of nurture? Is that because they had some sort of um, so you know? Let's uh, reverse the or let's go back to that example of of that boy and let's make it a girl. Let's make it a young cisgender girl, and she is on the floor playing with Legos, and these women are playing with her, and she gets a sexual charge and she develops not only a foot fetish, but also a sexual preference for women. Uh, and the, So again, as I said a long time ago, is that sexuality is weird, and there's only hypotheses and speculation at this point, and only anecdotal-seeming associations. It's very uh, difficult to, to lock this down. And, and so... uh, So I will say that according to my experience, yes, I have uh, seen both. Uh, You could say um, that—and again, this is all just speculation—and there's a a fair amount of literature, uh, biological and psychological, looking into the origins of um, whether or not you're heterosexual or homosexual. Or bisexual. There's there's a lot of literature. There's a lot of evolutionary psychology speculation. There's a lot of uh, genetics and 
And, but again, the gestalt is that we just don't know. And uh, again, in my model of understanding this, I would say that people are probably born with a, uh, a tendency towards one of the three orientations, where, whether it's um, same sex, opposite sex, or, uh, or both. And that, so it's a slight tendency. And then over a time, you are, uh, you experience life that uh, encourages one direction or another. Uh, let me back up. Actually, what what I what I'll say is that uh, there's there's various different uh, uh, temperaments that people are born with. Uh, that and again, I can't say this with authority. And we and science barely touches on this and barely demonstrates these these notions. But I I, I would imagine that there are people who are born thoroughly hetero and there are people who are born thoroughly gay and there are people born born thoroughly bi and then there are other people who are born you know with a with a slight leaning towards gay or a slight leaning towards bi or a slight leaning towards uh, hetero and again this is all speculation because we just don't understand the brain particularly when it comes to sexuality but but that seems to be my experience when you talk with people about their early notions of sexuality that this idea seems to bear out. And then as you develop and have experiences, you start to have uh, you start to paint more out of that canvas and create more of your preferences based on experience. So say for instance you have a slight tendency to be gay and you have an early sexual experience with a boy, and you're a, you're a boy, and th- that will perhaps um, f- uh, further push you in the direction of uh, having a solid preference for same-sex uh, sexual partners. And the reverse can be true as well. So if you are slightly leaning towards hetero and you have an early experience uh, an early homosexual experience th- that it that goes well for you you can't well i guess it doesn't have to go well for you it just has to, well anyway the point is is that you have some early homosexual experience and uh, i could imagine that could push you towards bi or towards um, being gay again speculation blah 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 so what people were emailing me about was so kirk are you saying that being gay is a choice or being gay is nurture and uh, and I'm saying, well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, what I'm saying is no one knows, including me. And anecdotally, according to the model that, of sexuality I'm using, yeah, uh, experience could uh, encourage one direction or, or another. I wouldn't call that a choice, um, but I, I would call that uh, environmental or nurture. Uh, to extend the question, is sexuality a choice? Yeah. If a hetero person decided that they wanted to become gay or to be attracted to same-sex people, if they, just, if they really set their mind to it, uh, I would imagine that they could absolutely do that. Now, people say that's ridiculous. You know, you're attracted to who you're attracted to. But uh, I, I could go into details on this that I don't have time for that would demonstrate that people can absolutely change their sexuality by choice if they put their mind to it. Um, some of it is hard to do, and, and it will complicate things potentially, but, but um, 
so, um, or, or another way of putting it is many of us have the capacity for varying uh, different sexual motivations and preferences and experiences, but we tend to relegate ourselves to a very narrow set of those sexual experiences because um, we liked predictability or we're with a particular partner or we don't want life to be too complicated or our society shames uh, things that are out. It's our, our society shames all sexuality, but it particularly shames things outside of a particular narrow vanilla brand of, of sexuality. But anyway, so can uh, so the listeners were emailing and saying, you know, it sounds like you're saying that it's a choice and that it's that it's nature and therefore can be reversed, which is the contention of conversion therapy. You know, you know Christian religion. Well, I guess many religions around the world will uh, try to change and convert someone from being gay to being hetero. And this is absolutely abhorrent. It's always been horrible. It's ridiculous. It's, it's, the, it's an oppression in the highest degree. Um, what's that uh, movie? Someone actually sent me a clip from it. Um, uh, because I'm a cheerleader or but I'm a cheerleader, I forget that. Um, it's a, it's a, a kind of a low-budget movie about this camp that tries to convert teens to being straight and it's um it's it it was way before its time i think it was in the 90s or uh, anyway uh, i remember watching that movie and just being like wow you know it's it's kind of fun you know it's a f- kind of a f- fun coming of age movie but anyway um and tragic in a lot of ways and to my memory it, i think it has um it has the captain from chips if you're old enough to remember the tv show chips with Ponch and John, the captain, the the guy who was in charge of everyone, I think he's this bigoted uh, a parent who comes to the camp and berates his daughter for being gay. Uh, who sent me that clip? Anyway, uh, so that's what conversion therapy people will say is, is being gay is a choice and you can choose otherwise. Being you, you're you know you're God didn't make you gay is what they'll say. God made you hetero, and you something went wrong through trauma or through your own choice, and you became gay. And so let's heal you, or let's help you choose to be different. And of course, that's ridiculous on a number of levels. And uh, so and so, what what people will do who are trying to uh, help gay people is they will try to demonstrate that being gay or bi is something you're born with, and they will point to different studies that that demonstrate that you're you're born gay or you're born bi, and so therefore God made you that way, and therefore religion shouldn't try to change that because that'd be going against God's will. And what I and I've talked about the I've talked about this for years. What I'll what I say about that is. When you involve yourself in an arg- in a ridiculous argument, you you make yourself ridiculous. To to try to I understand the effort of trying to demonstrate that quote, God quote unquote made you that way, but the science just doesn't isn't strong in that area, and it's really hard. Now maybe a hundred years from now we'll have the science to to demonstrate that absolutely you're born with ninety nine percent of your sexual preference. I don't know. But we do not have that science yet. And I doubt that that's what will occur. 
I imagine that it's that genetics plays a role, but also your life experiences and and really even your own choice can can affect things. Um, so I, I don't think that everyone is a hundred percent born with their sexual preference. From, you know, they emerge from the womb with a hundred percent of their sexual preference already encoded into their biology. Is some of it absolutely uh, that seems uh, very likely? Um, but the uh, the thing here is that it doesn't matter if you're born with it or it's a choice, because people have the right, adults have the right to choose who they are sexually attracted to as long as it doesn't harm people, and I throw that in because we're going to get into another question here, is that if, say, say a hetero woman at the age of 40 decides, and she's never been attracted to women, she decides, you know what, I'm going to be a lesbian. I'm, I'm going to change everything about my life, and I'm going to choose to be a lesbian. I'm going to have sex with women, and I'm going to marry women, and blah, blah, blah. Well, in those, in that instance, we would say, well, she wasn't born lesbian. She, she was, um, you know, she's making a choice. Now, this is a very hyperbolic example, but go with me on this. Uh, the she's not harming anybody. She's not harming any anyone. She wants to have sex with other consenting adults who want to have sex with her, and therefore, uh, there's there's nothing wrong with that. There's no harm. There's, there's nothing that is happening that is harming another human being. Therefore, human rights, uh, the, the, the paradigm of human rights, the, the principles of human rights dictate that no one should stand in her way and her partner's way. No one can and no one should. And the government definitely should, shouldn't be getting involved in that kind of uh, stuff and that, those kinds of decisions of people's lives. And therefore, when you're arguing with a religious person – and you're saying, you know, look, science demonstrates that that people are born gay, and then they come back with studies saying that no, there's there's other research that says that early life experiences can affect your sexuality. Well, you're you're arguing on the premise that if if someone is born gay, then that makes it okay, you know. Um, and what we really should be arguing is the whole argument is ridiculous because. People have the right to do what they want with their sexuality, and no one, no one has the right to uh, marginalize that or oppress that, or especially in you know enact laws to to uh, hinder that that process. Um, so, so I understand why there are people trying to find evidence that people are "quote unquote" born gay, but but to me, uh, it's it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter if, if people are born one way or, or another. Um, and what we really should be arguing is just the basic human right for people to choose what they want to do with their life as long as they're not harming other people. So um, the other question that I will get is another question that I will get to after the break. All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast, please do so. Go to patreon.com. When you become a patron, you get access to hundreds of premium episodes in which we do deep dives into various topics, and you also don't have to listen to ads. You might have to listen to this ad because this gets included. Sorry, patrons, for listening to this. Also, tell a friend or a colleague, particularly if they're in the field of psychology 
Also, rate us on iTunes if you can. Also, $20 patrons get mugs. Uh, I'm actually holding one of our Psychology in Seattle mugs right now. Pretty rad. We have a number of $20 people. Also, join the Facebook fan group on Facebook and also join the or and like us on Facebook. So join the Facebook fan group and like the the official Psychology in Seattle page on Facebook because you can play our Tuesday Tougher Bluff games. Okay, so so the other question that I've been getting over emails after publishing the attachment to your sexual abuser episode is: Can we consider being a pedophile? Can we consider that a sexual orientation? Um, actually, there's a third email I, I got from another fellow who I won't name, but he he was saying that I was confusing pedophilia with child molestation, um, and and it's true. What, uh, I, this isn't my expertise, and so in that episode, I was conflating pedophilia uh, with child molestation. So let me explain. So pet pedophilia has been defined recently, more recently, as a preference for having sex with minors. And just because you prefer, just because you you want to have sex with children doesn't mean you actually do have sex with children. There are plenty of pedophiles or plenty of uh, people who have pedophilic tendencies who have never actually abused a child, never had sex with a child, never looked at it. You know, they they know that they have that inclination and they they suppress it because they don't want to harm people. So pedophilia is the preference and child molestation is the action. And there are people who molest children, as I talked about in that, that episode, who aren't pedophilia, who aren't who aren't um, pedophiles. They there are people who are sadistic in general, and they just want to harm people, and therefore they will abuse children. So, um, so I have to make that distinction. And in that episode, I wasn't making that, that distinction. I, I was, um, although I did talk about that notion that there are plenty of people who are attracted to children who don't have sex with children because they don't want to harm people. I talked in detail about that. But when I used the word pedophile, I was basically conflating that with automatically that meant that someone that that person actually was abusing children and so there so the language i'm learning and um the the language is you have you have pedophiles who have a preference and you have child people who molest children and then there's a venn diagram where there are some pedophiles who actually abuse children and there are some people who abuse children who aren't pedophiles and there are some pedophiles who don't abuse children so does that make sense okay so the other email that i've been getting is people there's a lot of internet uh, weirdness right now around calling pedophilia a sexual orientation and there are people trying to get it included in the LGBTQIA uh, letter uh, club shall we say so they uh, I don't know if they're saying this but they might be wanting LGBTQIAP for pedophile or something and there's obviously a lot of controversy around this and so there, there are two kinds of people that I have seen who make this who make this argument. There are people that I agree with, and there are people that I don't agree with. Okay, so let me start with the people I don't agree with. The people I don't agree with who are trying to make pedophilia a sexual orientation is they are trying to normalize it, and they're trying to make it okay. They're trying to 
associate uh, pedophilia, you know, the, 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 they're trying to, they're trying to normalize the preference for having sex with children. They're trying to say, look, you know, it's just another sexual orientation and I shouldn't be marginalized and I shouldn't be oppressed just because I want to have, it'd be the same as someone saying, you know, I want to have, they're, they're conflating it with, well, there was a time when we used to marginalize and illegalize gay people. And then over time we learned that that was okay. And so there, there's a certain group of pedophiles that are like, look, we want to be accepted too. We want our preferences to be accepted too. And by extension, they're they're basically saying they want to be allowed to have sex with kids. They're not directly saying that. Well, oh, some actually are directly saying that. Some some are absolutely saying that. And some are saying things like, and there's various different kinds of pedophiles, right? That you have pedophiles who are attracted to infants. You have pedophiles who are attracted to, say, six-year-olds. You have pedophiles who are attracted to 11-year-olds and, and so on. And so they're, they're, trying, to, um, they're trying to normalize and, and potentially justify their abusive behavior because, one, they have elaborate defenses about their behavior. You know, whenever you engage your, in behavior that is harmful to other people, we have a tendency to justify it in our mind. You know, you um, uh, let's, let's just kind of come up with an example. Say you're you're in a parking lot and you back up. You're you're backing up your car and you accidentally ding another car. Well, we all have a tendency to say like, "Oh, well, that car was in the wrong place," or "The sun was in my eyes," or the ding isn't that bad or that car is old and so it probably doesn't matter and I could probably drive away and it's not a big deal. Um, actually, I did something like this when I was younger. I was, I don't know, 20 and playing softball in college and I, I hit a foul ball and, and we, were, we were playing in the middle of Seattle and there were cars. We were, it's, just like a, it's just like a city block. And when you hit a foul ball, it just went across the street and would hit people's houses or would hit cars and the my foul ball went straight through someone's windshield of their car and broke the windshield <laughs> and i remember it was like this cadillac or ltd you know one of those big boat cars and i i don't think i've ever confessed this before <laughs> i was 20 years old and dirt dirt poor i was just a dirt poor college student i remember I remember I would I would have five I would have a five dollar bill in my wallet and I'd be like how can I make this last me for two months? <laughs> I mean I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it it was pretty bad, you know. Like the I just had no money. I just, just I did I had very strange jobs to like scrape by minimum wage, which was I think just like six bucks an hour back then or something. And when I broke this the whoever owned this car when I broke their windshield, I. I had a mixture of feelings because on one hand I was like, well, you just broke the windshield. You have to replace it. And <clears throat> you know, that's, that's just the way that it is. But on the other hand, I'm like, but we were just playing softball and I just hit a, I hit a foul ball. Like how I didn't know that it, it could go over the fence. I, it, you know, why do they have a softball field without higher fences? And why are there cars parked over here? And, what bad luck that I would hit that. And, you know, I'm thinking about the expense. I'm thinking, I think, you know, especially an old, a Cadillac uh, windshield is probably, I don't know, at least two, 300 bucks, maybe more. And 
I, you know, sat there just staring at this thing while my friends were like, okay, let's get back to the game. And I'm just like, what do I do? And I took the low road. I wrote a note on, on a piece of paper and I put it on the windshield and I said, I'm terribly sorry for breaking your windshield, but I'm a poor student and I can't afford to replace it. I'm terribly sorry. I hope your insurance covers this or something like that. And and I just walked away. And that is awful. That is a terrible act. But I justified it in my mind through elaborate defenses saying like, well, they have a car, they have a Cadillac, they're probably rich or well, they shouldn't have parked across the street from a from a ball field or, you know, just all these defenses. And I I walked away from that experience a little guilty, but not as guilty as I feel now with without the defenses, right? You could also say that I was 20 and I didn't have the sort of moral compass that I do now. But the, the point is, is that we have elaborate defenses and everyone does this. And so, so uh, now if you're out there and you're that caddy owner, please, by all means, email me. I'd be happy to replace your... your um, with interest. <laughs> I'm terribly sorry about that. It's awful. Um, maybe, I sh- maybe I should just go back to that neighborhood and just kind of like walk up and down the street knocking on doors asking if, if they had a car in 1991 that uh, had a broken windshield from a softball. Anyway, um, so when pedophiles are wanting, they have a deep, strong desire for their sexual preference and they are attaching that sexual preference to children, they will engage in elaborate defenses to protect themselves from the notion that they are harming other human beings because most people don't want to uh, think of themselves as abusive or harmful to other human beings or evil or anything like that. And so they'll come up with very elaborate defenses like, well, you know, some 11-year-olds are are... Uh, already thinking about sex and, you know, or, you know, some, some, some 10 year olds fantasize about having sex with older people. So what's the problem? As long as it's not harmful to them, it's consensual, blah, blah, blah. So they'll have these, 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 uh, these um, defenses that will kick in that will justify their behavior because they have warring parts of themselves. They have this psychodynamic between this desire to have sex with a particular kind of person and this, and, and this other side of them that is, saying you can't harm other human beings it's it's not right and so something's got to give in that and there's going to be tension and there's going to be defenses that are going to kick in to to help the id realize itself and so so that's why there's a certain group of people that on the internet saying that um, pedophile pedophilia should be considered a sexual orientation and that it, it it should be accepted by society and should be included in the LGBTQIAP a letter ship, shall we say. Um, now, there's another group of pedophiles who are saying it should be considered a sexual orientation, but they're also saying that they, so these, there's, so this set of pedophiles different from the other set of pedophiles in that they're saying, look, having sex with children is wrong and having sex with minors is wrong and it should never be done and no one should ever do it. However, for whatever reason, I have, you know, call it abuse, call it genetics, I have an intense attraction to minors, whether it be young children or, or pre, you know, uh, tweens. And 
I can't do anything about it. I've tried to change it. I can't change it. And in, in essence, it's a sexual orientation. Having said that, I'm not saying that we should justify this behavior, and I'm not saying you should allow me to have sex with minors, but what I am saying is that I want society to stop uh, shunning us and calling us evil. I, would, I, don't, I don't have any control over my sexuality. It's, it's a sexual orientation just like any other. So these people I completely agree with. They're, they're saying it, they're, they don't know why they have this attraction. They are, uh, they are stating quite you know, strongly that having sex with minors is wrong and, and that they have never done it or that they try to refrain from doing it and that no one should abuse children. And, and, and what, what they're trying to do is what I'm trying to do which is raise awareness that there are a certain number of a certain percentage of humans for whatever reason are attracted to young children and they're only attracted to children. And with the way that our society approaches these people, we are actually not helping society because when you marginalize people so great, I mean, they're pedophilia, pedophiles are perhaps the most marginalized group of people in our society. You know, you, you could make that argument. Uh, even in prisons, right, there people kill them in prisons. And so they're at least, a part, you know, the rumor has it. I don't know if that's actually true. But, <clears throat> but anyway, so when we do that, what we do is we drive them really in, into, the, uh, into the corners, into the darkness, into the basements, and they can't reach out for help or they feel so ashamed they won't reach out for help. So what we need to do as a society is is open our arms to these people and say, look, we're here to help you. We're here to help you to understand your problem. We're here to help you not to engage in child molestation. We're here to, you know, see what we can do. Let's let's work together on this. Uh, let's let's not shun you just because you have a a mental preference for children. Just because you have a preference doesn't mean you're actually going to do it. And so let's let's try to work together on this. And there are things you can do to help people. There's practical things like just keeping people away from children, but there's also psychological things and treatment things that you can do to try to open up someone's sexuality. It's complicated, and there's not a ton of research. But <clears throat> but the point is is that there. So so when someone on the internet is saying, "I want to say that pedophilia is a sexual orientation," it could mean. It could mean something very terrible, like I want it to be a sexual orientation because I want to have sex with children and I want that to be normalized. Or it could mean I don't want to have sex with children and I know it's wrong, but I want people to recognize that I exist and that it's not my fault and that I'm not evil and that I'm not, I didn't wake up in the morning and say, I want to be this. In fact, if I could change it, by God, I would. Okay, so there's, so there's two and there's, you know, gray zone in between. Now, the problem with just even trying to say that it's a sexual orientation is that given the socio-political landscape right now, it is uh, it's, we, it's, it's convoluted by the people who are trying to have sex with children, by the, by the bad people who are trying to say that it's a sexual orientation. You know, if, if I were to stand up and or you know, post a YouTube video saying that, um, it's a sexual orientation, and try to explain it. People would 
think I was justifying child molestation, even when I was saying child molestation is harmful, it's awful, it's abusive, it, the, the effects of child abuse and child molestation last a lifetime. Believe me, I treat 55-year-olds who had been sexually abused, say, a handful of times when they were seven years old, and I, I have to, you know, we have to engage in years of therapy to help them heal from that. Uh, if anyone understands the, the pain and the trauma and the uh, negative effects of being sexually abused as a child, I understand that. Believe me. Um, so, so even if I was to explain all that, people would think I was basically trying to justify it. You know, it's, as I was saying in the other episodes, it's essentially like saying, well, all lives matter, right? Well, yeah, all lives matter, absolutely. But when you say all lives matter, it's even if it comes from a place of goodness, you are associating yourself with a group of people who are saying that black lives don't matter, essentially, or that black lives matter, the black lives matter movement is irrelevant or uh, social justice warriors, that kind of stuff. And so you can't say all lives matter without associating yourself with a group of people who have bad politics, who have who are wrongheaded. And so in the same way, you, it's hard now to stand up and say that pedophilia should be considered a sexual orientation because you're going to be you're going to be associated with this with this wrongheaded point of view. So there needs to be some other way of talking about it for the time being. Um, I, I don't know how to talk about it other than just to say that there are uh, there's a certain group of people who are attracted to children and want to have sex with children. There is a percentage. I don't know the percentage. I don't know if anyone knows the percentage, but there's a percentage of them who are actively trying not to have sex with children because they know that it's harmful. And because our society is just so backward we don't have a way of helping these people very easily. There's certainly help out there, and there are uh, specialists who who do this kind of work, but um, but we're not we're not doing enough, and we are uh, pushing these people too far. And you can imagine that the stress might lead to isolation and and drug abuse, which will lead to them acting out their their desire, which against their their better judgment, and so. Um, uh, we need to uh, reach out to those people. I don't know what to call that movement, and maybe someone already has called that movement, but maybe it should be called something like um, uh, uh, abstinent pedophiles, uh, the, the 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 pedof the, the pedophilia abstinent movement, or something. Uh, maybe maybe there already is a term for that. Maybe I'll Google that in a second. But um, but the the point is is that. When, whenever we talk about pedophilia being considered a sexual orientation, it's associated with the wrongheaded people, and, and so we just can't do that yet. Um, but we need to do something, and uh, there needs to be some kind of movement, some kind of education program around this. Um, I can't imagine this thing moving forward very quickly because it took us forever to get to the place where we are now regarding uh, LGBT LGB people. We're we're now trying to tackle transgender and getting some movement regarding that, and uh, and there's such resistance 
to to LGBTQIA awareness and legal precedence, and and there, there's just so much resistance in our society. Uh, we're getting we're we're progressing. We're getting somewhere, uh, but imagine if we tried to tackle abstinent pedof- pedophiles. Imagine that one. Imagine trying to push forward a understanding of that. That I can't imagine is going to happen anytime soon, given given the way people react, and frankly, given the way that people have been traumatized. There's there's a lot of people who have been sexually traumatized, just so many, you know, the it's research has looked into this a lot. So, something like a, a, a third of all women or and a, a fifth of all men have experienced some form of sexual abuse in their life. And, uh, and a percentage of them have experienced extreme abuse and, it's it's extremely common. It's just it's one of those underground things that, in a sense, I kind of wish that we could erase the shame and have everyone just wear like a ribbon if to to indicate that they have been assaulted in some way. And so we could look around and, and see like, oh, half of the world has been sexually assaulted in some way, and therefore, one, it's normal, and people shouldn't feel ashamed of themselves for being for being a victim. But two, God damn, we need to do something about this. <laughs> um, what is wrong with our society that we aren't trying to trying to help the perpetrators prior, prior to them um, abusing people and trying to help victims, you know, before they become victims, understand how to protect themselves? I mean, we do a little bit. It's not like we don't do things, but but clearly we're we're failing at that because it's continuing. And that's the other thing I just want to point out is like, again, it's hard to lock this down, but according to research and my, my own estimation on anecdotes is sexual abuse isn't, isn't declining that we're, we're still seeing maybe a little decline over the last 20, 30 years or something, but my guess is it's not much. And so we're clearly failing as a society when it comes to that. Now, I don't know the research. Maybe someone could email me and say, actually, Kirk, it's, clearly demonstrated it's been reduced to 5% of what it used to be. I don't know. I highly doubt that. But the, the point is, is that um, we, we're, we need to do something. And I can't imagine that uh, that's going to happen anytime soon. It's the, with the way people react. Um, yeah, I just can't imagine that. All right. Well, I was going to go into to talking about a number of emails, but I ended up just talking about one particular area of emails. And so let's just adjourn there. Again, please become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com. And please email me and let me know what you think about this. I have, I'm, this is not an area of, of expertise of mine. I don't really fully understand the political landscape. I guess I should have said this at the beginning. Um, this is just one of those things that I have naturally absorbed as being a member of, of our society and also in my field and also just getting a lot of emails from people. So if there's something that I'm missing or I'm using language badly, you know, feel free to email me. I, I, I don't, I, I actually love it when people point out mistakes that I make but it has to be within a uh, uh, you have to use your social skills as i always say <laughs> you, you know when uh when your friend is giving a speech 
at an awards ceremony and for for a half an hour and they make one tiny mistake when your friend walks off the stage you don't you don't go you made a mistake uh how could you make that mistake you don't you don't say that right you're like hey love the speech i love this part um in fact i i like a lot of your speeches you had a great energy i just wanted to point out this tiny little thing that you that this detail you got wrong so now i don't I'm, I'm exaggerating to some point, to some point, but uh, I would say 95% of the corrections I get on the internet, particularly on YouTube, are within a communication that is ex- is is just flat out abusive and comes across as a troll. Even though sometimes I'm like, oh, I think they have a point there, but there's such dicks about it that I don't regard it. You know, I'm just I instantly I'm. I've got I've been podcasting for 9 years. I've I've received tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of of troll types of and these kinds of you know, messages that I uh, I just I I have a self-protective uh, practice of just ignoring stuff like that because if I let all that kind of stuff in as I did in the beginning of this of making this podcast, I would cry myself to sleep every night. And so to protect my my sanity, I scan people's comments for um, uh, for abuse and and if they ha- and if they're abusive, uh, I don't read them. And so uh, so now, m- most of my listeners, at least the, the dedicated ones that and particularly the patrons, um, are extremely nice people and absolutely have wonderful social skills and are probably too nice to me in some ways. And so, uh, anyway, so if you have something to say, by all means, let me know. You can email me at contact at psychologyinseattle.com or you can go to psychologyinseattle.com and fill out the, the, the contact us form. You can also comment on YouTube and that kind of thing. All right, that does it for that long episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really do.